Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. At one time, the Susquehanna River was considered one of the best places in the world to catch smallmouth bass. However, the, however ever, over the past decade, the smallmouth population has declined to less than a third of what it was. At the same time, there are fish showing up in the Susquehanna with lesions or large blotches on their bodies. There's been a lot of speculation of, about what was affecting the smallmouth bass, but a new study has narrowed it down to two. It raises several important questions, how to protect the river and its wildlife, whether the Susquehanna should be designated as impaired, and what does it mean for the environment as a whole? We'll discuss those questions and a number of other environmental issues today with Pennsylvania Secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection, John Quigley. Secretary Quigley, welcome to the program. Nice to be here. Also joining us is John Arway, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission. Director Arway, welcome to the show. Thanks, Scott. Nice to be back. Let me tell our listeners that if you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at WITF. Dot org. Okay, endocrine disrupting compounds and herbicides. Explain what the research found, Secretary Quigley. Well, after uh, several years, about three years of very intensive study that involved partners, partners with EPA, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Susquehanna River Basin Coalition, and our friends at the Fish and Boat Commission, uh, after this exhaustive scientific study to try to narrow down the possible causes of these maladies in, in the smallmouth bass population, uh, we've, we've narrowed the causes down to two. Uh, pathogens and parasites and endocrine disrupting compounds and herbicides. Now, these endocrine disrupting compounds can come from a variety of sources. The, the medicines we take uh, from agricultural operations, industry, municipal sewage treatment plants, residential and commercial landscaping, golf courses, roadways. Uh, there's all kinds of sources of, uh, of the, these chemicals. And we don't yet have the precise source narrowed down uh, in this study. Uh, but uh, we clearly have narrowed the field of potential causes. Uh, we have a path forward in terms of additional research and some additional steps that we're going to take to really try to continue to get our arms around the subject. Uh, but I'm very proud of the work that the women and men of my agency did and the partnership uh, that they established in, in this study. It's important work. Uh, we're, we're a long way from home yet uh, in, in solving this problem, but we are committed to it. Director Arway, this is something that has been a major concern for you and Fish and Boat for some time now. There were 16 different potential causes that were looked at. Does this surprise you that it was narrowed down to these two? It doesn't, Scott. And this is this is only a preliminary step in in finding the the solution, or un, to better understand the causes that are causing the problems that we see in the bass in the river. Um, prior to 2005, we felt the river was doing fine. We had a world class fishery, as as you said. Um, the fish were healthy. Uh, we were seeing multiple year classes. The only effect were floods and droughts that typically occur in major rivers, and that was having a, that has an impact on the fish that live there. Uh, but then in 2005, we saw these sores and lesions starting to appear on young bass. We had a major fish kill. Anglers started reporting all these dead and dying fish in the river. Our biologists went out and confirmed that we had a major fish kill that had an impact on the year class uh, that year in the river. Since then, we started paying more attention to the river. And as we look more closely at the river, we start uncovering additional problems like these endocrine disrupting chemicals that are causing intersex conditions in fish. Male intersex, explain that. Male bass have um, um, egg precursors in, in their their um, their reproductive system, and they have a, a hormone called vitel 
telogenin that only should occur in female bass, but we find it in, in male bass. So that's not normal. Uh, and when we started looking more closely at the river, we started seeing a uh, higher frequency of uh, black spots on fish. That's a, um, uh, a, a response to an exposure to a chemi- chemical or a set of conditions that, that affect the, uh, the uh, fish's immune system and causes these black spots to appear. Uh, and then additionally, we started seeing sores and lesions on, on um, older adult fish. And then, as, as you saw the picture, uh, a cancerous tumor in adult right. fish. That, That's on our website, by the way, which is one of the grossest things I've ever seen, I have to say, that, that, that cancerous tumor on that, on that fish. And two years ago, I happened to be in the boat when a friend of mine caught that fish. I remember you saying that. And yeah. I was able to take a picture of the fish and then get it to our pathologist to take a look at and then get confirmation of that, of that cancer by uh, cancer pathologist at Michigan State University in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. What changed in 2005? You know, this sounds like something that uh, when you're talking about all those reasons uh, that the, the, the river, that these things are going to the river, that's not something that happens overnight. But if you have a fish kill, a major fish kill in 2005, what changed? Well, something happened in 2005. We don't, don't know what happened that caused that major fish kill. But since then, the river's not been able to recover, and that's really been the focus of the studies that we've been uh, doing collaboratively with the agencies uh, since then. And uh, the river's never been able to recover from that event that occurred in 2005, and we're not quite exactly sure what, what caused that major fish kill then. Mm-hmm. Any ideas, uh, Secretary? Well, again, obviously something happened in that time frame, whether it was the fact that the river reached a tipping point, kind of a cumulative tipping point beyond which it's, it started to manifest these kinds of conditions. We just don't know. Uh, we have to continue to apply uh, as much science to this issue as we can. Uh, I will say that since 2012, DEP has committed over $2.6 million for staffing costs and labor and, and lab work, et cetera. And in, in 2015 alone, uh, since uh, the Wolf Administration came into office, we've invested over $2 million in a water quality monitoring network that includes the Susquehanna River to gather as much data as we can in real time so that we can understand what is really a very complex river system. One of the things that I learned uh, that, that, that shocked me uh, in, in understanding this study is that in the area that we looked at, uh, about a 40-mile stretch of the Susquehanna between Sunbury and Harrisburg, there's actually five distinct rivers. Uh, the water in the Susquehanna doesn't mix for 40 miles. So you have five distinct water columns with distinct chemical characteristics. Uh, the, the location where the young year uh, smallmouth bass population was sampled happens to be hugging the shoreline, uh, the western shoreline, and that is influenced by tr- the smaller tributaries of the Susquehanna. But there's actually five distinct water columns, which makes it that much more <coughs> complex. Uh, it, it's, it's a real riddle that we have to unravel, and it's going to take some time and a lot more science to do it. All right. Help me to understand that. What do you mean the water doesn't mix? The, the water that flows into the Susquehanna comes from a variety of tributaries. Right. And for that 40-mile stretch between Sunbury and Harrisburg, the, essentially the water remains in, a, in distinct columns. You can identify five distinct water bodies. It's five rivers in one. Uh, for that that stretch, it's just uh, an amazing uh, example of of chemistry and natural phenomena, but the water columns just don't mix for that forty mile stretch, and that makes things much more complicated. The smallmouth bass start their life uh, on uh, near the shore typically, and that's influenced by tributaries, but they can then traverse the other five the other four water columns throughout their life. 
So the, the real question becomes, where, where is this impact really coming from? It, it's leading us or drawing us to the tributaries to really understand uh, where some of this chemical loading is coming from. We've got to march up the tributaries of the Susquehanna uh, to unravel this. Mm. Director, I had never heard that before. Uh, you aware of these five different uh, uh, types of water coming into the river? Yeah, and it's, it's not just... Uh, the Susquehanna. All, all rivers operate that way. Whenever there's tributary streams that come into a, a river, it takes a while for those waters to mix and become one, um, I guess, representative of, of, of one river. Um, so all rivers work that way. The Susquehanna's worked that way since it was originally created when the glaciers receded from Pennsylvania. The thing is, something's changed, and, and we don't know what that exactly is. So maybe one of the tributaries is having an issue and that's what's going into the river. Correct. Okay. And, and but but I think the important part of the findings is that we're starting to narrow down the causes and and hopefully find the sources of some of the causes we identified. Um, not only did we identify endocrine disrupting chemicals, herbicides, and pathogens as as a probable cause, a likely cause, but we also identified some causes that were unlikely, so we discarded those. But probably even more importantly is there's a lot, a number of causes that are still uncertain. We're still uncertain about, and I, I feel confident that some of those uncertain causes will be eventually identified as likely causes as we collect more additional information well, about like them. Like what? Like what? Uh, like nutrients, like um, uh, affecting algae blooms, um, nuisance algae blooms affecting lower oxygen concentrations in the river. You know, those kinds of symptoms are exactly what we're seeing in the Chesapeake Bay. And it's, it's, it's not um, uh, surprising to think that that's not also occurring in the Susquehanna, too. Secretary Quigley, he touched on something that I w was going to ask anyway. Uh, Pennsylvania is one of a group of states that is committed to restoring the, the Susquehanna River. And, uh, you know, many of the, the things that uh, are influencing the Susquehanna are also having a detrimental effect on, on, the, uh, on the Chesapeake Bay. That is Pennsylvania's major role as part of restoring the Chesapeake is the health of the Susquehanna River. We have taken steps over the past uh, 15, 20 years to, you know, in for bay restoration, shouldn't that, you would think that that would help in the health of the Susquehanna. Well, Why are, are we behind or it hasn't it worked or what? Well, there, this is another very complex subject. Uh, the long and the short of it is that Pennsylvania is not yet meeting its responsibilities to the Chesapeake Bay. But for me, uh, it's all about local water quality in Pennsylvania. We have an obligation. In fact, the citizens of Pennsylvania have a constitutional right to clean water. So we have got to look at, at, at the Susquehanna and, and all things Bay-related uh, through the lens of local water quality. Uh, over the last 20 years, the Commonwealth has invested between state and federal funding about $4 billion, with a B, uh, in uh, on-the-ground installation of best management practices. And that has started us toward uh, cleaner and, and healthier water, uh, fishable streams, drinkable water. Uh, but we have a long way to go. We're not meeting the, the mileposts that were established in 2010 by uh, a variety of uh, consent decrees, federal orders, and federal regulations. Uh, we are under a legal obligation to, to clean up uh, our local water quality, and by virtue of that, the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, we've got a long way to go. And uh, very frankly, in the last four years, uh, prior to the Wolf administration taking office, uh, the Commonwealth took a hiatus and, and did not put a, a tremendous amount of effort, frankly, into uh, that water quality work. Uh, Governor Wolf sees things differently, and we have been working in, with, in his administration. I've been working very closely 
with Secretary Redding of the Department of Agriculture, Secretary Dunn of Department of Conservation and Natural Resources on what we're calling a reboot of the state's effort. We'll be announcing that very shortly, but the work has already begun uh, to refocus our efforts to improve management, to be more effective in targeting our resources, and to create a culture of compliance. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, local water quality is everybody's responsibility. And every citizen, every community, every farmer uh, has a role to play. And, and we, are, we are calling that out and, and calling for uh, folks in, in Pennsylvania to really guarantee themselves their constitutional right to clean water by working with us uh, to, to clean up not only uh, the Susquehanna River, but by virtue of that, Chesapeake. You've used the words, the word complex several times. When you just listed that laundry, when you made that laundry list of uh, all the things that can go into endocrine, uh, you know, disrupting, disruption, it's like, wow, you know, I'm thinking just wastewater treatment plants, I'm thinking pharmaceuticals, but when you're listing all those things, this is, I mean, th this is a huge job. Yes, it is. It, it's, it's huge, and uh, again, I think DEP has done great work in applying science uh, to this issue uh, to try to start to unravel uh, the, this. It, it's a conundrum. Uh, we've got to continue to apply science to our work and, and engage in these scientific studies, do the water quality, the intensive water quality uh, monitoring and analysis that we have invested in uh, in the Wolf Administration. And we've got to start taking some concrete steps on the ground. And I'll give you an example of, of that. Uh, one of the, the cheapest ways to improve local water quality is to plant forested buffers. Uh, depending on on your uh, uh, on on who you believe, anywhere from 15 to 35 to 50 feet on either side of a stream, you should plant trees or at least grass. That does a number of things. It holds back nutrients that would otherwise wash into a, a stream. It it also can hold back some of these endocrine disrupting compounds. So a low cost, highly effective, best management practice is to install buffers along streams. And we intend to put a, a major effort into buffers. Uh, Secretary Dunn at the Department of Conservation and Natural Resources is leading that effort for the Commonwealth, and we're hopefully putting the finishing touches on a plan to really become aggressive in, in establishing forested buffers. That will help local water quality immensely. Will that solve the problem of the smallmouth bass population? We don't know. So we've got to do some other things. We want to inventory the use of herbicides uh, along especially some of these tributaries to try to get a better handle on, on the situation, get a scope uh, of where the, the problems might be. And at the end of the day, it's got to be a data-driven, science-driven exercise. And we at DEP are committed to this work. Uh, we are going to do as much as we can and be as aggressive as we can uh, to try to solve, understand this problem and solve it. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. We're discussing the health of the Susquehanna River, a number of other environmental issues to come on the program today. Our guest, John Quigley, Pennsylvania Secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection, and John Arway, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can also leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is one 800 729 Let's take a phone call and let's see. Let's go to who's our? This is our first phone call of uh, 2016, by the way. How and Carlisle. How you're on the air? Oh, thanks for having me. Um, I might add that I'm a biochemist, so I've been keeping up with uh, uh, 
the issues like uh, atrazine. Atrazine has been studied at UC Berkeley by a guy that is studying frogs, and he notices like frogs with three legs, and they have sex changes, and um, you should really uh, try to find this guy at UC Berkeley. You'll find that he's an interesting guy. How do you need a job? Pardon me? Do you need a job? <laughs> I know that's an odd question, but uh, uh, we're going to be talking about staffing at DEP here in a few minutes. I'm, I'm joking with you. Hey, thanks for your call, and congratulations for being our first call of uh, 2016, Hal. Uh, you are familiar. I think the research mentioned that chemical. What is atrazine? Atrazine is a uh, chemical that's used in uh, herb herbicides. Uh, so it has agricultural uh, operation or uh, applications. Uh, again, uh, urban lawn, uh, you know, fertilizer companies you, you might use that kind of chemical. So it's it's found in a number of different sources, but it is definitely something. It, it's one of those endocrine disrupting compounds that could be part of the problem. Are you familiar with the research he was talking about at UC Berkeley? Personally, no, but I'm sure that my folks at DEP are. I, I am Scott, and and the research has has been um, and it's fairly old uh, about the impact of herbicides on uh, organisms like uh, amphibians, like frogs, and and uh, if you dose them with enough of certain chemicals, you'll cause anomalies, like we're seeing in smallmouth bass uh, with the sores and lesions and the black spots in the intersects. Um, one of the challenges, and I think one of the most exciting. Um, uh, results of, of the work that was just done is that we finally admitted that we have some likely causes to what's causing the problem. And since herbicides have been identified, I think uh, Secretary Quigley talked about a couple of action steps. One is do an inventory of what herbicides are being applied in the watershed. Atrazine is one of the major ones that we know of. Roundup's probably another one. Uh, once we do the inventory, we'll find out. But probably most importantly, once we identify that, is to take action on minimizing the impact they have. The amount of those herbicides that are reaching those microhabitats those young bass are living in to minimize their exposure so that their, their immune systems doesn't get upset and they don't get compromised by bacteria and these sores and lesions. So That's really what's happening here, right? The immune systems are, are being compromised. Exactly. And, and that's what's causing them to get weak and not being able to fight back on the bacteria that live in the river all the time. And then they get infected, and just like we would when our immune systems get weakened by colds and cold viruses and bacteria. Okay, how do you stop that though? I mean, just what you described. Say you do come up with a database, you do identify the herbicides that are being used. Uh, I mean, you have a number of industries here in Central Pennsylvania, all along the Susquehanna River, that they probably would say our livelihood depends on using those herbicides. You know, one of the critical things is you use them according to label restrictions. Um, farmers don't want to over-apply herbicides because they're expensive. Okay, there's farmers, right. Um, so they don't want to over-apply them. Lawn treatment companies shouldn't be over-applying herbicides to treat lawns uh, to kill weeds. Um, so it, it, you can do it one of two ways. One's voluntary and, and, and two's mandatory. You can require certain things. I think one good example of a voluntary effort that's working is on, on an endocrine disrupting chemical is, is on triclosan. Triclosan is an antibacterial side that's in soaps and toothpaste and other things. Um, it hasn't proven to be a, very effective, and it's actually 
been discontinued in use in Europe, but some of our manufacturers, if you go to the grocery store and take a look at the labels on the back of some of the bar soaps and some of the antibacterial soaps, you'll see that it no longer has triclosan in it. Well, that's voluntary. Those soap manufacturers have decided to take that out of their product. What that does is it takes it out of the waste stream and it minimizes or eliminates that exposure to the fish that are in the river, uh, which is one of the EDCs that we're concerned about. Well, you know, and I'm the one that kind of, I have to admit, just from a personal point of view, the one that sounds scariest to me is pharmaceuticals. Because, you know, if all these pharmaceuticals, we know what happens when uh, they get mixed and they go into a human body, uh, they go into the water and, uh, you know, the wildlife is affected. And eventually I want to talk about how humans are affected, too. But how much of an issue is that? Well, we, we don't know. And, and that's part of the problem where there are many potential causes or sub-causes within this whole uh, idea of endocrine disrupting compounds. Uh, municipal treatment works can't remove those pharmaceuticals, they're excreted in, in waste, but uh, typical treatments, uh, conventional treatments technologies can't remove them. Uh, the prospect of upgrading municipal treatment facilities so that they have the capability to remove them is incredibly expensive. And we're not going to go there without enough data to justify it. So at, at the end of the day, uh, this question is all about data. It's all about applying science to narrow this down as finely as we can to really see if we can target the problem. But in the interim, we can do some common sense things like inventorying herbicide use. And if we can identify over-application or times when it's inappropriate to apply, we can certainly put out guidance and ask for voluntary uh, cooperation. But before you get to the subject of regulation, uh, which is a whole nother kettle of fish, to use a very bad pun. Uh, that is a bad pun, I have to say. It really is, sorry. Yeah. No, but it's, it's, right, it's early it's in 16. Right. Okay. Uh, but we have to have a lot of data and, and some, some lockdown science before we can approach a regulatory conversation. And that's the challenge that my agency faces. There's clearly a problem in the river, and we want to take action. But we, it's got to be the right action. And if we get to the point of, of a regulatory conversation, we have to have a lot more science behind us to back it up. Very frankly, in, in Pennsylvania, it's difficult to pass a regulation. Uh, we've seen that uh, certainly in recent years when the fiscal code uh, becomes populated with, uh, with provisions that require my agency to stop a particular regulatory package. We're seeing that now. Uh, in my own confirmation visits when I was confirmed by the Senate uh, last year uh, after being nominated for this position by the governor, I met with one afternoon, two uh, senators in the Republican caucus. On the first visit, the senator said to me, you guys better not even consider any regulation or impairment designation of the Susquehanna River because uh, my constituents won't stand for it. It's going to be too costly. I went directly next door to another member of the senator's caucus, and the, and the second senator said to me, you have to declare the river impaired. You've got to do whatever it takes. You've got to impose whatever regulations. So it, it becomes politically charged. But to, you, you said that those were two members of the same party. Of the same party. Okay. So it, we have a, a pretty rough go of it sometimes uh, at DEP, but at the end of the day, this all boils down to science and data. Uh, the governor is committed to transparency and integrity in our work. And integrity means doing our work with the best available science, the best set of, of data that we can possibly get. And, and that's what we're all about. We have put a, an immense effort into this at DEP. We will continue 
to try to amass the science and the facts and the data. And, and we will go where that data leads us. But in the interim, we want to take some common sense steps like encouraging the installation of forested buffers, getting an, a, a handle on the use of herbicides in the watershed. And if we can identify ways that, that farmers or landowners or golf courses or PennDOT can save money by reducing their application of herbicides, that's a win-win for everybody. It's a win-win for water quality, for the smallmouth bass, and for taxpayers. So we want to see if we can gravitate to some of those early solutions and continue this scientific work to really unravel this mystery. And for pharmaceuticals, don't flush them down the toilet. Absolutely. There, there are ways that you can properly dispose of pharmaceuticals, uh, and people need to really pay attention to that. And don't take the easy way out of, of flushing things down the toilet. Let's take a few phone calls. Daphne's in Camp Hill. Daphne, you're on the air. Good morning. Good. I remember hearing this discussion last year or so, and it bothers me that people who live along these creeks that go into the Susquehanna, uh, most of them still have people, you know, throwing uh, those chemicals on their lawns for killing, killing the weeds and fertilizing the grass. And, I mean, don't we also drink water from the Susquehanna? I mean, it just bothers me that nobody takes it personally. Not, not nobody, but many people do not take it personally that these things that you're talking about you know, make we have to do something about it on a personal level. Thank you very much for your call. And Daphne brings up two points. One is personal responsibility. Uh, but the, the other thing that she was talking about there is, and one of the big questions is, we've been talking about the smallmouth bass. What about human health? Because, yes, the Susquehanna River is, uh, you know, is a watershed. It is a water source for millions of people that uh, drink that, that water. Uh, John Larway, let me go to you first, that personal responsibility. Well, I, uh, John and I are both um, government officials, and when we took our oath of office, we, we um, swore to uphold the Constitution, and we have an article in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 27, that says that we have a trust responsibility, he and I, to make sure the people and fish are protected, our environment's protected, to make, for, for all the people. We represent um, you know, the people's voice, and we, it's our responsibility to make those decisions um, for the best uh, needs of the fish and, and, and the people. Uh, in this case, you know, we believe the, the smallmouth are canaries in a coal mine. We believe they're That's showing us getting at, yeah. showing us symptoms that, that could translate to effects to other things, whether they're other fish in the Susquehanna River or people that withdraw the water uh, further downstream. We know that the conditions that are occurring in the Susquehanna are having an effect on the Chesapeake. We already know that. The Chesapeake's already been uh, called sick, impaired, and we have a plan to try to fix it that we're delayed in, but we're still working on so what's good for the river is good for the bay. What's good for the bay is good for the river. The trouble is the approach is are slightly different. The Susquehanna is different than the bay, which is why the bay's TMDL, the impaired uh, prescription, doesn't include EDCs. Um, we're looking at nutrients and we're looking at sediments for the bay. Um, lowering those are going to help the river, but lowering the EDCs in the river are also EDC. endocrine disrupting right, chemicals right. yeah. that, are yeah. also going to help the bay. So, um, And they're also going to help um, the water treatment plants that have to treat the water to consumptive use standards, which is John's department's uh, responsibilities to make sure that those treatment plants are treating the water to the standards that people can consume and, and not get harmed. All right. Uh, before we take more phone calls, um, 
Secretary, quickly, you brought up one of the big issues here, and that is impairment. John R. Way, for a long time, has been calling for the Susquehanna River to be designated as an impaired waterway. DEP has resisted up until now. Does this research, does this report change anything? Well, and I wouldn't necessarily say that, that the agency has resisted. What we have said is that we need to do additional study. And, and certainly uh, since 2012, uh, the agency has been doing some of the studies involved. It, it's really important to point out that this CADIS study, this study about the smallmouth bass, does not equal an impairment decision. It's one piece of data that we will use in the ultimate impairment consideration. Uh, there are multiple sets of data, multiple criteria that we've got to look at in terms of an impairment decision. It's obvious that something's wrong, but will an impairment designation fix anything? Uh, one thing that, that folks need to understand is uh, the impairment decision requires then the Commonwealth to set a total maximum daily load for something. We don't yet know what that something is. It's not enough to say we need a TMDL for EDCs, for endocrine disrupting compounds, because there's, there's scores of them. So what are we controlling for? So we don't have enough data to answer that yet. The other complicating factor when it comes to an impairment decision is uh, impairment decision in and of itself doesn't fix anything. It starts a 13-year clock. If, if we declared the Susquehanna River impaired today, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania would have 13 years to do additional studies to identify the specific compound or compounds for which we would establish a total maximum daily load allocation. So it, it doesn't fix anything. It's, it's not a panacea. Uh, but we are in the process of doing the, the an update of the impaired waterways list uh, that we hope to put out for public comment period uh, probably next month. So we're in the, in the home stretch of doing that analysis. Whether we declare the Susquehanna impaired or tributaries of the Susquehanna impaired is, is still something that we have yet to determine. But I want to assure your listeners and, and certainly my friend John Arway that the work on this is going to continue. Uh, DEP is committed to fixing this problem. Uh, whether we use the tool of impairment or not, is, you know, we'll decide that. But regardless of what direction we go, we are committed to working in partnership with the Fish and Boat Commission to wrestle this problem to the ground and fix it. But it sounds as if time is of the essence, that even though it's a 13-year process, that maybe today is the day to do it to get it moving. Well, that's a fair point. That's a fair observation. And we're, we are wrestling with that internally right now uh, and trying to decide what, what the best way forward is to ensure local water quality in Pennsylvania. Our mission at DEP is to protect Pennsylvania's air, land, water, and public health. And that is a mission that we take extremely seriously. And that is a mission that, that the governor honors every single day. Uh, so we are going to go where the facts and the science lead us. Uh, we'll, we'll make our, our best judgment based on the information that we have and what we think is the best course uh, going forward. But there is absolutely a sense of urgency here. And we want to start doing some stuff, some things, today, uh, whether it's starting the inventorying of the use of herbicides in the watershed, whether it's, it's starting on an aggressive program to plant these forested buffers that can help filter out some of the endocrine disrupting compounds. We're going to start that work regardless. 
and and whether we get to the the technical point of an impairment designation and all that that involves uh, that remains to be seen but we will explain this work every step of the way we will do it transparently but we are absolutely committed uh, to improving local water quality in in the Susquehanna and in every river in Pennsylvania every stream in Pennsylvania John Orway you have as i said uh, for some time now been calling for the Susquehanna to be designated as impaired maker case uh, the impairment call has really been a call for action. Um, I, I've been clear that whether it's mandatory or voluntary, we needed to do something for the bass's sake. We continued to see diseased fish from 2005 until this past year. Uh, we haven't been doing anything. Uh, John's, pro- John's promise to, to move forward with a riparian buffer initiative and a watershed inventory for herbicides is, is doing something. And we haven't been able to get somebody to do something to recognize the problem until now. Um, I've, I've said before, it's like going to the doctor's office and continuing to get rejected when you know you're sick. Um, we've taken the river to the doctor's office again, and we've got a plan to do something to help it, help make it better. Um, the impairment designation, I believe, is not going to take 13 years because there's a little-known provision in the Clean Water Act that says that if the Commonwealth decides that the Susquehanna River is important enough to make it a high-priority impaired water, there's a two-year requirement for a plan. That's the same kind of requirement that the Great Lakes states used to address the toxic algae blooms in Lake Erie. I believe it's the same kind of timeline we could put the river on if we declare it impaired. We can work on a plan, put it together in two years, and begin begin fixing and identifying these sources and causes of the problems of the Susquehanna's bass. Secretary Quigley, putting you on the spot here, but would you agree to uh, that two-year plan if the state designates the Susquehanna that way? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, we have to have the right data and the right science. The, 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 it really boils down to impaired for what? We know that the Chesapeake Bay is impaired because of phosphorus, nitrogen, and sediment. There are three distinct things that there that is causing impairment in the Chesapeake Bay. We cannot say the same with specificity with regard to the Susquehanna River. We can't just saying endocrine-disrupting compounds that the river is impaired for endocrine-disrupting compounds isn't enough. It's not clear enough. It's not precise enough. There, there are very precise controls and, and regulations that are involved in an impairment decision. Uh, you have to control and, and write regulations to reduce loading of these chemicals. Which ones are they? We don't have yeah, that data You just can't stop them all. No, it, it sounds a lot simpler than it is. You just can't stop them all. It, it's not a switch that you can just uh, flick on or off. Uh, there's a lot more work that needs to be involved here, and that's what we're wrestling with internally. It, it, it's easy to, to call for this kind of a designation, but it, it's a lot harder to do in practice if you're going to do it right. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest for today's program, John Quigley, Pennsylvania Secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection, and John Arway, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission. We're talking about the health of the Susquehanna River, smallmouth bass. We'll touch on some other environmental issues as well during the last uh, 20 minutes of the program. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Should mention real quick that uh, we got a phone call from Mike in York, and uh, he mentioned that he was just 
just recently in the Northern York or York Regional Police Station saw a drop box that was for people to deposit their pharmaceutical drugs and they would be safely disposed of. There are a lot of police departments across the state that have that. I don't know if there are other locations as well, but that's something that uh, people should look at, not just for the reason of polluting the waterways, but also we know we have a drug problem across the state too, uh, a prescription drug problem. So that kind of uh, kills two birds. We're going to use bad puns, Secretary. Kills two birds with one stone. Maybe I shouldn't talk about that in the context of an environmental conversation. But anyway, you get the, you get the gist. Let's take a phone call from... Uh, oh, before we do, uh, John, our way, you wanted to mention something about the, the impairment designation before we get to the phone call. Yeah, Scott, I've been around this business for about 35 years now, and, and I've watched Dion, DER and now DEP make impairment decisions on other streams and waters around the state. And in fact, we probably have over 19,000 miles out of our 86,000 that are uh, currently classified as impaired waters. Impaired just means sick. And one of the ways you make an impairment decision is you look at the biology of the stream or river and determine whether or not it's healthy or not. And up until 2005, we've looked at the biology of the river and said it was healthy. Since 2005, the biology's changed. However, we look at it and we still say it's not sick. We don't say it's, it is sick. We, we say it's not sick. It's in a limbo status right now, which is why we actually await DEP's determination coming up here at the beginning of the year. Um, to make that determination, you don't need to know what's causing the sickness. You just have to say that the river is sick. And then what that does is it puts you on a clock to figure out what the sources and causes of that sickness is. We've got a lot of miles of streams that are on that clock in the state where we don't know the sources and causes, but they're on the 303D list. They're on the impaired water list. And that's really been our argument since day one, is that let's just say the river's sick, put it on the clock, whether it's a 13-year clock or a two-year clock, put it on the clock, find the sources and causes during that time, because that's what you're supposed to do based on what the Clean Water Act requires you to do to do. And then once we find that, then put together a prescription, a plan to fix it. And and that that's really been the case that we've been making since day one. I'm not going to, we could talk about this uh, for the remainder of the program, but that uh, is a decision that could be coming up soon if it is indeed designated as impaired, correct? Yeah, we're likely to put out the list of impaired waterways uh, in February of this year. We'll put it out for public comment. I want to say John has been a passionate and he informed passionate. advocate, at, uh, and I get it. I completely get it. I will also say that by the same token, there are several indicators of water quality in the Susquehanna River, like macroinvertebrates, that are actually showing significant improvement. So there, there are a variety of hurdles you got to get over. Uh, to, to achieve a, a, an impairment designation, and we are looking very, very closely at this. John's input and, and his passionate advocacy certainly are important. Uh, John is an important stakeholder. The anglers in Pennsylvania and, and the fishing industry in Pennsylvania is an important consideration for the state. Outdoor recreation is our third biggest industry in Pennsylvania. So this stuff matters, and, and we get it. Uh, we are trying to do the best that we can with the information and the science and the data that we have, and we're, we're going to apply our best judgment to this this problem. Let's take some phone calls and emails. Andy is in Chambersburg. Andy, you're on the air. Uh, yeah, hey, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Um, I've fished uh, Susquehanna as well as some, some similar rivers, such as the Shenandoah River in Virginia for smallmouth. And, and the Shenandoah seems to have a similar riparian buffer. There's lots of farmland around. It's probably getting the same ecological insults, and yet their smallmouth population seems to be doing fine. Has there been any collaboration with other agencies from different states to compare similarly sized rivers to the Susquehanna to maybe say, 
you know, these compounds are present here and we're doing okay, so maybe there is something else in your waterway that's causing this seemingly unique situation. Good question, Andy. Thank you very much for your call. Andy, great question. And yes, we actually have done a lot of that comparison work uh, looking at, at analogous rivers across the country. That's uh, part of the work that our staff has done at DEP. But great question. Yeah. Andy, Another, I, I, I would just say that every year we get together, our biologists, our state biologists, get together with state biologists from Virginia and West Virginia and compare data from the Shenandoah, the Potomac, and the Susquehanna to try to see what may be common and what may be causing. The Shenandoah and the Potomac are suffering the same kind of consequences in a different way. They're seeing multiple life stages of different species being affected by disease, as well as uh, certain uh, different age classes of fish being affected by disease. In the Susquehanna, we're only seeing uh, primarily young fish being in, in, impacted by disease, and now we're seeing some of that disease in older, older fish, but only in smallmouth bass. You raised another question that I had, and that is, why just smallmouth bass? Now, I know there have been other species uh, in, the, in the Susquehanna that have been impacted uh, by, you know, different, uh, you know, with the splotches, for example, the lesions and all that, uh, the cancers. But why is it smallmouth bass that the population has decreased so much? Well, smallmouth are the dominant sport fish in the river, so people pay the most attention to the smallmouth. We may have missed a signal back in the early in the mid-90s, Scott, when the rock bass started to disappear from the Juniata and the Susquehanna. They're in the same family, Centrarchidae, as the Susquehanna or the smallmouth bass are. Uh, I don't know if we missed that signal or not, but we decided to lower the krill limit uh, from 50 to 15, thinking that that was going to help the problem because the rock bass were being overharvested. Reality is the rock bass have never recovered. Uh, we don't know if that was the early signal that we missed, but we do know that there's something that, that's going on with smallmouth that's not having an effect on other fish that live in the river. Let's take a, another call from Elizabeth in Carlisle. Elizabeth, you're on the air. Uh, good morning. Thank morning. you for taking my call. Yes, I'm so welcome. grateful for passionate, knowledgeable people like you and your guest. Uh, I'm a clinician, and where we work several months ago, uh, boxes appeared so we could discard our leftover syringes that still contain drugs. These boxes appeared one day. It took less than a day to fill them because they're pretty small, and we were to discard our syringes right in those boxes. No one has been back to collect them or empty them. So I don't know if it's a funding thing there or did they not uh, instruct the institution what to do with these boxes? But uh, it seemed like a good idea, but uh, it fell through the cracks. I think it's a darn good idea. Hey, thank you very much for your call. And let me just weigh in here. said earlier about uh, police departments across the state. Publicity is another thing. People have to think about this on their own. We know it's convenient. You have a, a, an old bottle of pills to flush it down the toilet. Don't do that. Collect it. Put it in a bag. Go to the police station. It takes two minutes. But, you know, she brings up a good point here if no one's going to collect it. Right. Well, it, th th we have to create a system. Uh, in, in Pennsylvania and I think across the country to properly dispose of these kinds of chemicals. They're, they obviously have the potential, at least, to cause a lot of problems. So proper disposal is important. Public education is important. You know, we see that in, in all of our work at DEP from things like recycling to this month happens to be Raid on Awareness Month. Uh, th there's an ongoing need for public education about a lot of these issues that center around environmental protection. It, it really is possible for every single <coughs> citizen to make a difference. Uh, to, to really do something that is meaningful, that's going to impact uh, the, the quality of their environment, their own public health. Uh, we all live downstream of somebody. 
so we all have a shared responsibility for water quality, and little things can add up and make a huge difference. We have an email here who asks, uh, and this is a great question, with the budget cuts, uh, Secretary, that your agency has experienced in the past few years and the loss of nearly 700 employees since 2008, do you feel that your agency is equipped to both study this issue and provide enforcement and or remediation? Well, that's a loaded question. And, and I'll step out here and say the answer to your question, and I thank you for it, is no. Uh, over the last 10 years, the average Commonwealth agency, starting in the depths of the Great Recession, lost 6% of its complement. But in that same 10-year span, DEP lost 14% of its complement. And that, that number 700 that you talked about, I'll, I'll sharpen that one up. In the last seven years alone, DEP has lost 671 positions. 441 of those are permit writers and inspectors, you know, the folks, the boots on the ground that are out there doing the hard work of protecting uh, local water quality and, and, and public health generally. Uh, now, Governor Wolf understands this trend, and he has done his best to reverse it. In his first budget, uh, he proposed a 6% general fund budget increase for my agency and an additional 50 inspectors. Uh, that 50 inspectors was to be paid for by the severance tax, which obviously the General Assembly has not passed. And in the, uh, in the current state of the budget, uh, we didn't get as much as the governor proposed, but we still got an increase, and it's the first increase in memory. Uh, so the governor is committed to helping us to restore our capacity to, to meet our mission, and that's protecting Pennsylvania's air, land, water, and public health. We have a long way to go. Uh, we've got to reinvest in the agency. I'll, I'll give you another example. Uh, this is in the world of information technology. Uh, our inspectors go out with clipboards and carbonless paper. Uh, when folks, for example, in the oil and gas industry, from the industry, use iPads, you know, tap, 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 upload your data, go on to the next well. Uh, we ha we've seen a huge systematic disinvestment in DEP's technology capacity. Uh, our information technology budget in 2004 was about 16 or about 23 million dollars 23 million dollars uh, today it's 16 million dollars and that's not because technology has gotten cheaper it's been slashed uh, our main database is called efacts it's kind of the spine of everything that we do at DEP it was put on quarantine by the Commonwealth Office of Administration eight years ago it's end-of-life technology it was developed in the 1990s uh, the company that developed it Oracle won't even support it anymore so we've got to replace it and that goes really across the board. We have, when we process air quality permits, which involves a lot of heavy computational work, uh, we have to wire together five or six PCs to do these computations. We have, we're dealing with antiquated technology. We're drowning in paper in the agency. And, and this has been allowed to accumulate over years. Uh, we're committed to fixing it. Uh, I want to get our agency off paper in the yeah. next three that's years. A, that's, a, that's a good, it, it, it's, small it's goal. It's a big ambition, and that will do a number of things. It will improve. Our, uh, we want to reduce the regulatory burden. The, we want to enable things like e-permitting. You know, file all your, all, your, all your documents electronically. File, pay your permit fee electronically. Don't cut us a check that then sits in a drawer. So we've got to get off paper. We've got to go all electronic. And I want to put all of our data on our website in a transparent, understandable, accessible way. We need to be accountable to the citizens that we serve, and the way to do that is to be transparent. So we've got to invest heavily not only in, in bodies, 
but we've got to invest in systems. We want to get more efficient. We want to improve our business processes. And by virtue of that, perhaps shrink the amount of additional people that we need. But at the end of the day, uh, this agency needs an investment in, in both uh, individuals and in technology. The governor gets that. Uh, he is committed to helping us restore our capacity. But we've got a long way to go. I can't help but notice that uh, the loss of those 700 positions, positions, and especially the inspectors, from 2008 comes at a time when natural gas drilling has taken off here in Pennsylvania. Now, you know, when you're talking about water quality, you're talking about the environment. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and it's it's pretty obvious that when the demands on the agency are are increasing almost exponentially. And we're seeing very significant year-over-year -year budget cuts. Something's not adding up. Uh, again, Governor Wolf gets it, and he put on uh, on the table in his first budget 50 additional inspections. 50 for doesn't sound like a whole lot out 50, of 700. Well, 50, if if you deploy them smartly with the kinds of technology that we want to invest in, that those 50 additional folks, in addition to the about uh, 110 that we have, can cover a lot of ground. It was a down payment, a very significant down payment, which, unfortunately... Uh, the General Assembly did not agree with. Uh, so we've got to continue to, to make that case, uh, demonstrate the need uh, for this additional work. We've got to show our work. And I, I think at the end of the day, we'll be able to demonstrate uh, a business case uh, for these additional positions and this additional investment. We need it to meet our mission. Yeah, 50 with clipboards especially don't sound like a whole lot. Uh, we have an email here from David who says, I fish the Conestoga River frequently from Brownstown to its mouth at Safe Harbor, and the smallmouth there are thriving. I've caught and released as many as 20 in an afternoon. So whatever is affecting the Susquehanna is not affecting the Conestoga. The Conestoga receives huge amounts of agricultural runoff as well as treated and untreated when it rains hard sewage. The only difference I can think of in terms of pollutants, something has changed in the past 20 years, is runoff from fracking. I realize that correlation does not prove causation, but can you address this topic? We have about three minutes. Well, there's, there's no evidence that any of this is related to, to hydraulic fracturing. In fact, uh, the, the real decline in the smallmouth bath population occurred really in the first year or so of unconventional shale gas development in Pennsylvania, and the, the wells weren't even drilled in the Susquehanna River Basin. So, frankly, there's no connection between fracking and, and this problem. And I, I agree with John. Um, we have no evidence to suggest that fracking is connected with the problems we're seeing in Susquehanna uh, because of the timing of when the problems occurred. The river has, this is another email, the river has been in a state of turmoil for 150 years or more due to a parade of assaults and no 20-year period is comparable to another. The biological community has been constantly changing. Eel, shad, many native crayfish and clams are gone, nearly gone. It's embarrassing to hear some state biologists claim that the river meets all standards when it obviously is not in good shape. Dams and invasive species are two major problems that need to be addressed with emergency contaminant or emerging contaminants and pharmaceuticals. Well, we looked at uh, the invasive species issue, the competitiveness issue, and that was ruled out as, as a potential cause. Uh, I think we, we have arrived at uh, the, the direction that we need to go in, and it's these endocrine disrupting compounds. We need to zero in on this, and we need to wrestle it to the ground. It's going to take some time, but we're committed to it. We only have about 30 seconds left. So what's next? I mean, you've talked about a number of things here, but what do you see is happening here in the near future? Well, in the short term, uh, we, as I said, are, intend to work uh, with my uh, 
fellow cabinet members on this uh, significant uh, enhancement of buffers, forested buffers in Pennsylvania. So we're, we're looking forward to rolling that out. Uh, the work that we're going to do around Chesapeake Bay, I think, is going to have uh, a significant impact. Uh, we want to start the inventorying process of the use of herbicides in the, in the watershed and see what that data tells us. So we're committed to an, uh, an aggressive start on this problem. Uh, ground's too hard to go out and plant a tree today, but the first time the ground, uh, hey, if you know, if it warms up again, let's plant some trees around uh, around the streams. It's it's good looking too. It looks nice, you know. John Quigley is Pennsylvania Secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection. John Arway, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we talk state budget.